Hey, Kara. Guess how many views my article now has? How many? 439,000. That is way more than mine does, so congratulations. And the trick, apparently, is to submit to the conversation, because Sapiens has now picked it up. But Sapiens is, oh no, no, Sapiens did a piece on your fire watching, TV watching. That's right. I was confused. But uh, that's awesome. So now I know. People, publish with the conversation, because Sapiens may pick you up. And you have analytics in your dashboard, and you can actually track it and be obsessed with your own statistics. That is one thing I'm glad I do not have, because I would be obsessed with my Yeah, uh, I keep looking at it and refreshing. Anyway, I'm going to get right to the point today, because I actually have to get home at a reasonable time. I was on campus for 13 straight hours yesterday. Um, What's your point, Kara? My point is that I'm getting off track on trying to be on point. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, so today we're bringing on Dr. Alice Yao, who just gave a talk three hours ago here at the University of Notre Dame. So she is an archaeologist by trade who got her PhD at University of Michigan. I saw that. I had this whole conversation with her of like, Michigan is everywhere, and I don't think they realize it and keep track of it because they should. Anyway, so she is an archaeologist by trade, but she gave a talk called The Whiteness of Milk. The High Stakes of Lactose, in parentheses, in Tolerance, which is totally outside of her typical field of archaeology, but the talk was really fascinating how this idea of lactose, or I should say lactase persistence, is a symbol of white superiority for other quote-unquote races, uh, which is, of course, a big divergence from, from what her typical work is, but it was a really awesome talk that she and several collaborators have taken a deep dive into the history behind all of this, uh, as well as an assessment of the science, how the science is done, and then how the science then reinforms itself in what she'll probably describe as this really weird cyclical pattern of falling back into bad habits over and over and over again. Was it earlier this year or was it even last year around the time that we talked to Andrea Wiley when the white supremacists were trying to show off their whiteness by showing their, I don't know, their Northern European ancestry and their lactase persistence by guzzling milk with impunity. And it was like a meme that went around. That literally came up. And also the role that businesses like 23andMe, the whole ancestry business has in this and perpetuating all of this stuff. But anyway, so we're gonna bring her on. I'm gonna send her the link right now. Hi, Alice. Hello, I'm Chris. Hi, Chris. Nice to meet you. Anyway, so we've already introduced you and uh, introduced the talk that you gave earlier today and why it was so interesting. We kind of start off almost all of our episodes the same way, and it's a little bit of a a getting to know our guest and kind of how you came into anthropology and decided to pursue it as a career. So you're more or less your own origin story in anthro. My own origin story. Well, let me... uh... Let me go back. I think I got into anthropology in college. All undergrads at Chicago are required to take uh, this kind of social theory class. And in my first year, I was assigned uh, Levi Strauss, The Savage Mind, as the course text. And I just remember finding that book so compelling, however unfashionable it is to say that now. <laughs> I remember thinking, you know, that this kind of crazy French guy is going to 
basically explain how primitive logic is just as, or so-called pre-scientific knowledge is just as valid as sort of Western scientific rational enlightenment thought. And I, you know, from there, I just thought the premise was so compelling and so seductive. And this idea of, you know, where he compares the engineer to the, the, you know, the MacGyver, the bricoleur, who's just kind of makes meaning out of various bits and pieces and is able to make kind of life work. And with his engineer is this sort of like hyper pragmatic and methodical thinker, things are done by design. And it just, you know, made me really think about the world that I live in and how we kind of take so many things for assumption as the way to, you know, as the one way or one mode of doing and is the the most practical and and reasonable way of doing things. But there is this, you know, other world and an other mentality or mode of thinking that is kind of asking you to think outside the box at the same time. And I just found that so, so kind of so provocative. And I think that's what drew me into anthropology. And then I had to read Tropique. And, you know, it was kind of like Levi Strauss's travelogue and his travels into the Amazon. And I was just struck by how someone can be an outsider and be put in this very unfamiliar place. And also that moment of unfamiliarity where you kind of learn to question yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, growing up in mostly white, Anglo, white communities, small communities, I've always been sort of, you know, I've always sort of felt like the outsider, right? And I'm always the one sort of looking in and finding things very strange and then thinking about my own identity and where where I fit in the world of mainstream culture, right? So I, I think that's sparked my interest in anthropology. And then how did you decide to pursue archaeology within anthropology? I, I had an internship at the Field Museum when I was in college. I was working on a Indonesian shipwreck, and it, it just seemed very appealing that you could tell a story from a fragmentary object. And that's something that is so, you know, from the past can tell different stories in the present. I like the idea of working with a material archive that is different from working with, the, say, a textual archive and, and the, the kind of what-if questions that that kind of sparks. And I then I think when I was in college, my, when I graduated from college, I, you know, I went on a, an excavation in China. And I, I really like the kind of uh, physicality of, of geology. There's something romantic about it. It's, you know, you put a hole in the ground and you don't know what you're going to find. It just seems such a, I don't know, like you're, the, you're there and you're going to reconstruct this history, right? And that just, it seems so ambitious and so far-fetched. And I think that's what like drew me to it. So ridiculous in some ways. From what I understand, I didn't have... Kara's advantage of seeing your talk, but it sounds like your talk took a different, maybe a slightly different tack than what your a lot of your published research has been on. What's your area of expertise as, as you've defined it? So I work in China on the Bronze Age. And the region I work in China is uh, in the Southwest. So in the sort of lowlands of the Himalayan. So pretty high by our standards. It's 2,000 meters and above sea level, but it's in the lower foothills. And it's this area that's kind of swedged in between Southeast Asia, Tibet, and mainland and China. So this kind of frontier zone. And my research is mainly, I'm mainly interested 
in looking at the period when the Chinese Empire, known as the Han Empire, which is contemporary with the Roman Empire, expanded into this region or incorporated it into its administrative system. You know, so I'm interested in questions of identity, questions of colonization, and the forms of cultural interaction that is in the kinds of political relationships that develop in this kind of space. And I think what interests me most of all is this kind of sense that how people living on the margins start to understand and navigate their role and their position within a new kind of political order. So how do people understand the, the way empire works, the way empire uses time to control or manage its subjects? The way the you know an empire tries to control them people's emotions and and how they grieve for their family members, how they construct social relationships, community relations, and how all of those things are kind of you know under influx in these kind of places of in between empire and the wild. Let's say because yeah. it's a very forested region. I love this, and I and I want to read more. And one of the reasons. This is very superficial, but just just acknowledging that most of us in the U.S. grow up with the Roman Empire as the sort of basis of at least Western thought and civilization, and the fact that there were completely parallel and interactive colonization movements and civilizations going on is so underappreciated and so understudied, at least here, right? So I'm I'm super fascinated on so many levels. However, we're a human biology associated podcast, so I don't get to go down into the weeds as much on your book and your research as we'd want to. But it sounds like then this idea of identity construction, it maps on to probably what I'm guessing what you were talking about today. Carrie gave me a little bit of background, so I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And we've had guests on several human biologists who talk about lactase persistence and lactose intolerance, quote unquote, and, mm -hmm. and issues around that. So I'd love it as someone who wasn't there for your talk today, you could give me a quick and dirty on what it was you talked about. My talk today was about the history of lactase persistence as an idea and how race was always sort of implicit in the, the kind of research design of bringing lactase persistence into a kind of empirical world. You know, who has this particular trait and who doesn't? And how do we study? And why is it so important that we understand its role in, in human evolution? And so my attempt to understand why we do interdisciplinary work has the study of lactase persistence has now become this spiraling kind of project where, you know, you got not just geneticists, you have a biochemist, evolutionary biologist, archaeologist, computer scientists, all trying to sort of figure this elephant in the room hmm. out. But it, it just seems like when I started looking into it, it just seemed like the more fact, factual this thing is, the more real, the more real it becomes the more insidious it also becomes. So it's like, you know, the way that because it, it is so traceable through these SNPs, through, through the, you know, the genetic, the way knowing how it's actually regulated. So all of these things bring the sort of reality to the gene, but it's also re-racializing the kind of identity of, of alt-right or white, you know, white, I want to say white supremacy, because I think whiteness is itself 
a very um, contested idea these days. And thanks in part to the Human Genome Project, you know, which said that we are all the same and there's no scientific basis to racism. And so my talk today was really trying to understand how lactase persistence became so real and so empirically real, but at the same time seemed to be kind of charting a different are feeding into a different kind of racial future, a different kind of racial identity politics. Speaking to my own colleagues in the archaeology, it's kind of like, you know, poking my colleagues at the same time, you know, to sort of think seriously about what, what you want to do in a collaboration of this nature. When you're working with population geneticists, what exactly is the question driving the research? And so for me, it was, I think, in some ways to be, a, to be provocative within my own discipline, right? And I want to I go back to, I guess, the critique of archaeology and genetics in just a moment. But I want to make sure people get to understand how you got interested in this, given that your area of focus is archaeology in China during the Bronze Age. A lot of our listeners might be, how the hell did you decide to take a deep dive into okay. lactase persistence? No, that's a, that's a perfectly fair question. I mean, so I have a good friend, Miranda Brown, who's a food historian of China. Of China. And she's, you know, she works in the same period, like the Han, uh, Han Imperial period. And she's been tracking recipes from this era. And what she noticed was that there is a lot of dairy in these recipes. A lot of, you know, milk being used as a, it's not clear, it seems like it's being used as a medicine, but other times it's not. It's just, you know, kind of like a refreshment to have for, you know, farewell people who are pretty well off. And so she asked me, she was like, you know, how do you know from the archeological record that people aren't drinking milk or, you know, aren't using dairy products. How do you know it's like a Mongolian introduction under the Mongols? How do you know the antiquity of these practices? And, you know, I sort of went through the usual, like, oh, you know, archaeologists can look at the zooarchaeological record, you know, age profile, sex profile. And she was like, that doesn't really answer my question. And then so we talked about using dental calculus to sort of see if you extract the molecular signatures of dairy. And then she was like, well, you know, that still doesn't answer my question. So then I, I understand what she was asking me, which was, why are people who are lactose intolerant drinking milk? Mm. And I was like, yeah, I, that is a good question. And at that point, I didn't really, I just assumed lactose intolerance is just a, like a fact of life, right? And she was like, did you know that Mongolians themselves are lactose intolerant? And I was, I was like, uh, no, I didn't. And she was like, well, maybe you should think about this problem of dairy in East Asia. And, and you know, in particular, because I work in a region that has a long history of pastoralism. Okay. And there, there's a sort of, you know, interaction between Han people or Han colonists and people who were formerly pastoralists. It's a kind of ecologic mosaic where there's a lot of, you know, exchange between different, different tribal groups. So I sort of started thinking about this. And I was like, okay, well, I am collecting materials, skeletal materials I'm hoping to be able to do ancient DNA analysis on. So maybe trying to figure out if these people were lactose tolerant or intolerant might be something to consider down the road. 
but I should do some homework, right? So then when I started looking into the, the actual research, I didn't realize how many tentacles were, were behind involved in this kind of research. And then I real, then quickly dawned on me that from very early on, lactose tolerance, even in the absence of knowing anything about the genetics of, of how this gene is regulated, it was always a kind of a question of race from the, from the very beginning. And so that's why I, you know, I thought, okay, if I'm ever going to do this kind of ancient DNA work, I should probably get a better handle on what is at stake and even trying to take on lactase persistence as a research problem in my area. And then I started reading, you know, all these nature articles, which, you know, in the last 10 years out of Europe, and it, it was so disturbing to me that, that I just, I was like, uh, this is interesting, but maybe it's also an opportunity to, to kind of talk to my colleagues about what we should be doing in, in light of the revolution that is ancient genetics what is being hailed as the next revolution in archaeology. If this is the first wave of that, that kind of collaboration, then we're, I think we're in trouble. So what did you see in your readings that both caused you this consternation and also what has been racial about lactase persistence from the beginning? Well, I think the, the racial dimension emerged very uh, in, in the work of a cultural geographer who noticed based on earlier clinical studies that there was a difference in the ability to digest lactose in African-American and white populations. And from those clinical studies in the 60s, this gene or this particular trait came to be identified with a particular European kind of ancestry or heritage. Then that kind of opened up all these other kinds of clinical studies at the global scale, which all kind of pointed to the high frequency of lactase persistence as European, exceptionally European trait. And there was no genetic basis for a lot of this early work. And there are also a lot of anomalies. So for instance, this study, which people define clinically lactase persistence, you fast for eight, like 12 hours, then you drink a liter of milk, and then they measure your hydrogen breath. I mean, who does that, right? But the test itself is designed on the assumption that people who are lactase tolerant drink that much milk, right? Because it is their prime, it is one of their primary sources of calories. So that's their operating assumption already, which seems completely crazy to us. But that is the metric by which global population differences were based on. And rather than taking that on as a problem that needed to be resolved, it seemed like that the exceptional nature of that lactase, North European lactase gene, then drove in this direction of research, both in genomics and in evolutionary biology. And then even when they zoomed in and figured out which particular gene and sequence were involved in turning that lactase gene on and off, in Europe, they were like, okay, and that was when the alt-right picked up on this, right? They were, yeah. they were really excited about this. Then what followed was the discovery of mutations in African populations. Mm-hmm. But you would think that would somehow kind of change the narrative and redirect, right? But it didn't. It was taken as a, in like a positive light as an example of gene culture co-evolution because a lot of those populations are pastoralists. And so it seemed like these early ideas about pastoralism and the selection advantage conferred by lactase persistence that was demonstrated. But then it just it got even stranger because mathematical models started to show that the European gene was a strong sweep 
and the African genes were a kind of more ambiguous, you know, comparing to as a weak sweep. And it's not, no one's invoking race explicitly, but there's always this under unspoken assumption there. So how was, what was the initial alt-right reaction, if you know, to the discovery of these lactase persistence genes in several African populations? It wasn't just one. Yeah. Was it just like, oh, it's a weak sweep, so it doesn't count? <laughs> that was one of that was one of the you know interpretations and which they use to discount the use of lactase persistence as true as a truly reliable indicator of whiteness of purity and there's a lot of discussion on stormfront about this right so so and so was I'm able to digest milk I can drink lots of it and then another person would you know reply and say you know they have these African genes too and so that doesn't mean you're really white. And then they would finesse it a little bit to say that there was this weak and strong sweep difference. I mean, they're very attuned, right? They're very like savvy about how uh, the, the kind of arguments within the scientific research and how to use them. Yeah, so, and then there were a couple of discussions where they got into these really nasty, you know, name calling kind of um, situations where you're not white, I'm whiter than you. But then there would always be someone who would kind of interject and say, like, we should all be unified. Um, we shouldn't be divisive. We shouldn't use milk tolerance to divide. And yet we're going to use milk tolerance to divide. <laughs> yeah. And then so there and then they would like go into detail about like, maybe it's not just cow's milk. So sheep milk is different than cow's milk. And same thing with goat milk. And so maybe the lactose content in those other, you know, other mammals are different. So we can still digest milk. It's just not cow's milk. So therefore we're still white. Qualify, qualify, qualify. Very interesting. While stabilizing lactase persistence and the use utility of it and the reality of it, right? And so I want to circle back now to the connection with archaeology and with genetics. And so this was something that was brought up both in your talk and in questions after your talk from people in the audience of how archaeology and genetics have knowingly or unknowingly perpetuated a lot of this connection between lactase persistence and race. And some of it has to come down to the granularity of the populations that they're looking at. Uh, where some get very granular and some yeah. like they just take a really zoomed out view of quote unquote variation. So I was wondering if you could kind of critique just a little bit how the field of anthropology has been part of the problem. One thing is that this Indo-European, right? It, we've been the gatekeepers of how these terms are used. And so whereas these language families, they're constructed in the same way, in a phylogenetic way, like haplogroup types are, con are constructed. And, and I think there's been considerable sort of self-reflection in the discipline about the truthfulness or the kind of social construction of, of language categories within anthropology. Um, that is really much a legacy of 19th century Victorian anthropology. So yeah, I mean, Indo-European makes us nervous but so does evolution, right? So I think uh, it would say that a lot of my sociocultural colleagues would do quite a bit of gatekeeping to keep evolution under, you know, to tame it in some sense. And I think, you know, when I talked about the history of lactase persistence, 
I talked about how people would refer back to the original research and how this association of daring culture or daring ideology in the selection of the gene. But evolutionary biologists are very careful to always leave the Indo-Aryan part of that original hypothesis out of the picture. Mm. And, and now I think Archaeologists who should know better, if they've taken, you know, if they've been trained properly, should know the kind of history of that in of their discipline and what it means to bring Indo-European back into the mainstream, especially given the the kind of racial politics of today. I just think it's I do not quite understand why they would do this. And I, I think the geneticists are like they feel comfortable publishing in nature now using this term in part because they've got fifty authors, co-authors, and half of them are archaeologists. And so that must be okay. So has this in any way changed your original thought of looking at ancient DNA in your field sites? Are you backing off from it a little bit or yeah. are you taking a different track? I think I'm backing off from it a bit, a little bit, because what I've realized by reading a lot of these ancient DNA studies, it's like you're, a lot of times you're trying to figure out admixtures of populations. So it's like how, what percentage of the gene, compo genetic composition of this population is made up of population X, Y, Z. There's, that's the question. It's all about migration-driven, migration and replacement-driven and based on these admixture models. And to create these admixture models, it's a multivariate statistical calculation where they, they use what's called basically groups, known groups today, modern-day ethnic tribal groups. I think this relates in some ways to, you know, Cavalli Sforza's early human diversity genome projects, a collection of these originary groups. And so it's a calculation of difference between, of certain genetic sequences between intergroup variation. And then you look at your group 3,000 years in the, in the past to see how far your study group is from these kind of control groups. And so to me, that is already like your time difference between, time lapse between now and then and the way that I'm sure you can do this statistically and demonstrate significance of, of a statistic, but I just, I don't know. I mean, like what, if that's how we're going to count, if that's how we're going to evaluate ethnicity in the past, mm. I, I think there's some both epistemological issues to address in that, the units of analysis that we're working with and, and how disjointed all of these units of analysis are. Totally agree. I just, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I understand ancient DNA is now being hailed as a fourth revolution after, you know, radiocarbon dating in archaeology, but I, I'm on the fence, I have to say. Yeah, the reification of ethnic identities in a past population, it leaves many of us a little, a lot reticent. Yeah. And yet at the same time, we know that if we don't do it, somebody, Jared Diamondish or whatever, you know, choose your person from another field who's a popularizer will. And we're, we're not guiltless as public engagement people doing this podcast right here. Like we want to have these conversations out there. But, but I think the point you make is good in that we want to remember to continue to problematize some of these assumptions yeah. that are being made and, and some of these generalizations mm -hmm. and interpretations from, from the data. Yeah. It's brave work to be able to critique your own field. I think it's really wonderful and self-assessment is always necessary. And it's hard to critique across fields too, yeah, right? I, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so kudos to that. So 
So not to change the subject entirely, but we, we do have to wrap. And one of the things that we always like to do, we like to assume that our guests are all work. No, not all work and no play, but we generally find that they are. But we give you a chance to tell us what you do for fun anyway. So we always like to ask how you balance your work life and your, your personal, your family life. What do you do for fun? I've got two kids. I don't, I mean, I have so, I'm so, I'm stretched so thin. But, you know, when I was on leave last year, uh, for a quarter, I took this improv class. Ooh. It was so much fun to just, you learn how to just get up there and make stuff up. You know, like you're in, every, in your every day, you're so tamed and you don't think, you just, yeah, you're so self-conscious all the time, right? But in improv, I don't know what it is. Like, you just kind of don't care. Look at that big smile on Kara's face. Big smile. My husband is a big comedy improviser. And so improv has been a part of my life for like 10 years now or more, actually, at this point, I think. Oh, no. Ka- a little less. And Kara and I, <laughs> we've, actually, we've actually been doing a study of the benefits of improv. Really? Yeah. all levels. Oh, I'm sure it makes a huge difference because, I mean, even it, sometimes it's not even verbal or communicative. Improv sometimes is just like throwing a hacky sack to someone and trying to fake them out. And then, you know, that in itself is, it's amazing what it does to your muscles. Like you just, you know, we're just throwing, a, passing a ball around. I feel yeah. like you just threw us a ball, like giving us a way to connect everything we're doing. Yeah, that was awesome. And it's also, once Chris and I actually get that manuscript together, we'll totally do an episode on it to, to get the results out there. For sure. That sounds like fun. It was. Really- well, it was actually a huge hassle. Trying <laughs> to schedule people to drool in tubes around <laughs> rehearsal schedules and performance schedules and non-improv. It was, it was a logistical nightmare, but it was still interesting results. Anyway, <laughs> bring it back to you, Alice. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, ask you about your work, what are the best ways to do that? Probably by email, because my office phone, I never answer it, because they're always trying to sell me life insurance. So I never answer that phone. <laughs> always someone selling me insurance. I'm like, man, I'm not even close to retirement, and you're like pushing this. That's hilarious. I have my volume turned down. I don't answer mine either. But that's because they want me to pay my student loans back. Right, so we'll make sure to put your email and your website up on the show notes. Yeah, my website, like, I, I, I haven't fixed that thing in two years. <laughs> That's all right. Maybe this will be the impetus to do so. Hey, Chris, how can people get a hold of you? Well, I'm on Twitter, and you can find me at Chris underscore L-Y. What about you, Kara? You can find me on Twitter as well, at Kara Akabak. And we have been the Sausage of Science. You should like us, share us rate us and tell all of your friends about us and we want to thank caroline owens our producer for making us sound awesome and the human biology association for supporting us and we want to thank you for listening alice thank you so much nice to meet you hopefully i'll see you when i'm in chicago in a few weeks yep all right bye bye bye